Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, gay acceptance is on a downward slide making Boston's LGBTQ events more inclusive. And two gay Olympic athletes take on the Trump administration. It's our LGBTQ roundtable. Later in the show, these dangerous mental illnesses affect 30 million Americans throughout their lives. Binge eating disorder is more common than breast cancer, HIV, and schizophrenia. And most people, you would never know somebody's struggling with it. Two local experts dispel myths about eating disorders. But first, joining me in the studio, Sue O'Connell, host of NECN's The Take with Sue O'Connell and the co-publisher of Bay Windows. Welcome back, Sue. Hey, Kelly. Dwayne Stewart, Director of Community Affairs for the Fenway Institute. Hi. Thanks for having me. And David Zimmerman, publisher of Boston Spirit Magazine. Hello, David. Hello, Callie. It's great to be here. Let's jump right in with this study by GLAAD that shows alarming erosion of LGBTQ acceptance. Now, first, I'm sure that many people listening are going to think, what? Because many, many people have commented on it seems so fast that from, let's say, 10 years ago, we moved to you know, approval of same-sex marriage and a, just a bigger, broader way of thinking about issues that impact members of the gay community in a more respectful way. That's, that's what I meant. So this seems to be going against the trend, Sue. Yeah, I mean, I think there's always backlash to any progress that gets made. And I also think that the current environment and tone set by our president of the United States allows and gives permission to people to express more passionately views that they may have kept to themselves because it was becoming less socially acceptable to be a bigot. Mm. <laughs> so this happens often in many surveys that depending on what the climate is, people feel they can or cannot express themselves. So I think it's deserving our attention. It's deserving our watching it and see what happens with it. But I also think it's a blip. And I, I think given the current situation, given the president of the United States, given Mike Pence, our vice president, people are feeling like they can't come out and just say they're the bigots that they are inside. And we'll just need to push mm -hmm. back and have society change the conversation by continuing to be open and out and being who we are. Dwayne, just so that people understand how this is measured, this declining acceptance, the GLAD and Harris polls measures American attitudes toward LGBTQ people and issues. And it says that the number of non-LGBTQ U.S. adults who were very or somewhat comfortable showed a drop just so that people understand. Now, weigh in as you see it. Yeah, I mean, I um, you know, definitely agree with Sue. I th 
but I, mean, I have hope that that this is a blip, but I don't know if I am as optimistic. <laughs> I just understand that when Trump was elected, there was an increase in the number of violence that happened against uh, LGBTQ people. I do think that people are emboldened right now by the tone of the administration and our legislators right now. And I think that people do feel like it's okay. You know, just looking across the spectrum of discrimination, you know, the tiki torch protesters of the mm, alt-right mm. Um, and how they have come out and how racism is being emboldened as well in our country right now. Um, you know, I hope this is a blip and I hope that people continue to be out and be activists and continue this rise of kind of resistance. Yeah. Well, David, I wonder if it's a situation because I felt this often as an African-American. OK, you know, what more do you people want? Look, you got civil rights. You got a lot. What, what, right. what are the complaints about? We're complaining. <laughs> right. Right. You know? Right. I, I think what what we're seeing here is more of a surprise for us in this room, people who are listening locally, regionally. And what we've seen over the last year plus is that the country as a whole is not a mirror image of Massachusetts or even the Northeast. We've got a very progressive, wonderful state that we live in. We are surrounded in large part by progressive and liberal states. Uh, and even if you want to go past Connecticut into New York City, what we've seen over the last year and, and with the current administration and with the wave of voters that elected the current administration is that the country as a whole is very different than what we're seeing here in the Northeast. I think that's reflected in the poll that you're talking about mm. and, and, and with current attitudes. So I think sometimes we get a little bit insulated in our views. If we're on social media, chances are we are friending people who have similar views that we have. If you live in a particular region of the country, the news, newspapers, talk shows typically reflect the views of the majority of the population in that area. It's good for ratings. It's good for readers. But when you expand your view and you look at what's happening in different regions and different parts of the country, different parts of the world, you could see this trend happening. And this is just a mm. seemingly a continuation of that. All right. Well, Sue, one of the issues that you're concerned about because you want the trend to happen is you noted in Bay Windows that Trump has spent his year attacking LGBT people. Yeah, I, this is the, the amazing sort of conversation. I had the opportunity to talk to and interview candidate Trump where he assured me that we could expect positive movement and progress that. on LGBT issues. But at this point, he's dismantling everything that progress that a president has the power to do. You know, there's the removal of the mention of LGBT health issues in the United mm -hmm. States Department of Health and Human Services website that's been removed. The HIV AIDS treatment and prevention infrastructure, again, also with the budget just released, his budget proposal, that's been removed. Immigration, you know, this is a huge issue for the LGBT community because there are LGBT immigrants and, and undocumented people here who are looking to be able to stay in the country and may not be able to get the protection that they need, especially if they're fleeing and are here as refugees mm. uh, from countries that are killing them. You know, so the list goes on and on. And when people talk about how they think that the presidency for Donald Trump has been a failed presidency, what they often are not looking at is what the agenda of someone like a vice president, Mike Pence, how that's being enacted and how progress is actually being dismantled and so many levels, removing us from the U.S. Census, which, yeah. you know, we just were put in recently. And it doesn't seem it's like death by a million paper cuts. It doesn't seem like it's a big deal to people who are looking from the outside, but it's an erosion of uh, presence and rights that the Trump administration is being very successful about. 
David, the power of the bully pulpit to, if Sue is correct in her assessment that he spent the year attacking LGBT people, then that bully pulpit adds something to it. Oh, without, mm-hmm. w- without a doubt it does. And we've talked about the marches and the tiki torches and so forth. People are emboldened. And that thought works on both sides of the aisle. In the previous administration, the LGBT community felt emboldened and felt empowered and felt heard and validated which was wonderful if, I think like most of us, that's what you were looking for. Mm -hmm. Now the pendulum has swung, and the people that are on the other side of the aisle are now feeling emboldened and feeling powerful, and they're feeling this wave, and they're riding this wave. And that is, to call it a bully pulpit, President Obama used it in one direction. President Trump is unfortunately using it in another direction. Dwayne, weigh in. The Fenway Institute, which is um, research arm of Fenway Health, we released a brief that kind of outlined all of the things in the first year of the Trump administration, how it affected LGBTQ healthcare, And like was said earlier, there's been just a slew of attacks against the LGBT community since um, he went in office, you know, with the trans military ban and some of the other things that happened, um, you know, and having Mike Pence behind him, who has put funding into conversion therapy in his history. And so... They're clearly from the top. A lot of these attacks are having a larger impact on our community and on people like David was just saying, who have those same alignments with Pence and some of the other conservatives. They are definitely feeling like they can come forward. And now is a time to kind of move a lot of their issues forward. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Sue O'Connell of NECN and Bay Windows, Dwayne Stewart of the Fenway Institute, you just heard him, and David Zimmerman of Boston Spirit Magazine. We're discussing the local, regional, and national news affecting the LGBTQ community. Now, while you all are talking about some bad times and some bad attitudes, there are some gays for Trump. <laughs> um, just aren't there always, Kelly? Doesn't every no, community, I, every I, constituency I, have their little little troublemakers? Like, pay attention to me. I <laughs> just want to point out that this is a very interesting piece. The Boston Globe highlighting gay and lesbian conservatives who were saying, you know, his agenda sounds right to them. And that he's actually opened some doors Yeah, I mean, for there's them. always, first of all, that until this past election, 30% of gay men voted Republican. That's a general number that has consistently been true. But and it's a world of difference between Bush and Trump. Now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, then yeah. uh, it wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, it's, I love to hear a lot of the Republicans who worked on the George W. Bush administration and campaign talk about how terrible Trump is when they weren't at all concerned about using gay marriage as a wedge mm. issue, you know, to get their candidate elected. But at the same time, you're right, Trump is not Bush. That doesn't mean that the 30% of predominantly gay men who voted for Bush didn't vote for Trump as well. They're probably just not as open about it as these folks who have been out ho- holding rallies and the Boston Globe has reported about it. So, I mean, the coverage of the issue like that, certainly everyone deserves to be heard in their politics. But this is, again, to me, one of these, let's go talk to the Trump voters and see if they're still supporting him. And let's go talk to those white women who voted for Trump and see, you know, it smacks to me a little bit of that. All right. Well, we're going to go listen to Republican Chris Barron, who spoke to CNN during the 2016 election about his support of Donald Trump, the candidate. And he was the president of the now defunct group Go Proud. 
For me, terrorism and our safety in this world is an LGBT issue. For me, health, you know, healthcare is an LGBT issue. For me, retirement security is an LGBT issue. For me, jobs is an LGBT issue. Because all of those issues impact the LGBT community. I have no doubt that Donald Trump presidency would be better for LGBT Americans. Okay, Dwayne, is this just par for the course? I, or a I sign like of something significant? Right. I feel like in every community that is considered liberal, you know, black communities, LGBT communities, you know, there's always like kind of a you know, smaller minority of folks who trend towards conservatism, you know, and there there has always kind of been that group of folks. And I feel like this is just kind of part of that. And I don't quite understand it <laughs> as, as someone who, you know, believes that Trump is kind of eroding a lot of our rights at this time. But people have always kind of compartmentalized the issues that they're facing in their lives. And, you know, if you're a Republican and you believe in small government and, you, and you're fiscally conservative, you may just kind of blindly kind of try to ignore the other side of the issues. Yeah, I, I feel so much better if they would just say that, you know, just mm. say, you know, mm. I believe in these core things that I believe the Trump administration is going to bring. It may hurt my standing and my LGBT community's rights, but I feel that's more important than the rights. If they just said that, I'd have full respect for them because that's what they believe and that's what they're being honest about. But to pretend the Trump administration is going to forward LGBT rights because they might do well on one or two categories is just BS. I think that there are two other things that are potentially at play here. One is there is always a faction, a group of people who, when they are told what to do, will react to do the opposite. So by and large, the gay community has been told by HRC, by all their the other organizations, by, uh, yeah, by all their other leaders, mm -hmm. got to vote for Hillary Clinton. Hillary's the one, got to, we're supporting Hillary. Support. And I think there is a group of people who are just going to say, don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me I have to fall in line like sheep. I will make my own decision. I will do what I want to do. So you've got that group of people who want to be contrarian. And then there's the other part of it where for hundreds of years now, the concept of the snake oil salesman has been around in the United States. I think that President Trump and his campaign was the ultimate embodiment of the snake oil salesman. He, he took out his ball of elixir and he said, uh, we're going to take care of uh, terrorism and we're going to take care of this. We're going to take care of that. We're going to build a wall. Mexico's going to pay for it. I'll be the best person for the LGBT. I'm going to do this. I'm not going to Medicaid. And I think there were people who put up their hand and said, hey, I'd like to buy a bottle of that. And I think part of that is at play, too. So I think a combination of those two things also added to this group. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Sue O'Connell of NECN in the Bay Windows, Dwayne Stewart of the Fenway Institute, and David Zimmerman. You just heard him of Boston Spirit Magazine. We're discussing the local, regional, and national news affecting the LGBTQ community. Two gay men, out gay men at the Olympics, used their Olympic time and stature to make a comment about both uh, who they were and their participation in the game. So first, let's hear from Adam Rippon. He's a skater. He's speaking at a press conference at the Winter Olympics. The Olympics are about Olympic competition and the athletes involved. I don't want to distract from their Olympic experience, and I don't want my Olympic experience to be about my pens. I think that me using my voice has giving, given my skating a greater purpose of than just something that I enjoy to do. It's given me a voice to, to reach to young kids. I've gotten so many messages from young kids like all over the country that my stories resonated with them, and it's incredibly powerful. 
So Adam, before he got to his uh, competition, by the way, he won a medal, was asked about Mike Pence leading the American delegation at the Olympics. And he commented about his concerns about his support of so-called conversion therapy. Now, Vice President Pence denied that and asked for a meeting with Adam. And he said, I'm, I'm not doing it. So you heard him say, you know, why he felt it was important just to sort of do what he came to do, but at the same time speak out. Also, Olympic free skier Gus Kenworthy, who is openly gay, spoke to CBS this morning about why he will not go to the White House after the games are over. After the Olympics, the Olympic team is generally invited to the White House. Do you think you would go? No. I mean, when we have people elected into office that believe in conversion therapy and are trying to strip trans rights in the military and do these things that are directly attacking the LGBT community, I have no patience. What's the power of that, of, of the stars, so to you know, oh, the, it's, the celebrity it's, voice? It's incalculable. In this era now where we have athletes from everywhere speaking their minds and being political, how refreshing is it to have Adam Rapon, who, you know, you just keep reading these articles in the press of grown gay people saying, if only I had had a role model like that. You know, not to become an Olympic athlete or a skater, but just to have someone who is clearly out and proud and speaking about it and then competing, you know, and just getting back to what they're there to do, which is to compete and hopefully win medals. And, you know, they didn't invent not going to the White House to make a point. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that during this administration. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree. I think this is a great example for youth. I think, you know, when I was growing up, I wish there were more folks who were like this, who were out um, and doing things like this. I were can you definitely... surprised they spoke out? No, I mean, I'm just trying to think from their perspective. If I was going to the Olympics and finally after all these years I was doing, finally getting to this place and then Mike Pence is the person that's there representing our delegation in America and knowing that he's, whether he denies it or not, there's a history of him supporting conversion therapy. That's the truth. And I would be upset as well, and I would speak out as well. So I commend them for them speaking out, and I think it's great. And I do agree, though, that it's sad that kind of Mike Pence has kind of become Adam's story throughout this process. Mm-hmm. Um, he They still have a medals to win and a competition to do. But I do think it's great. I think they're amazing role models. And David? Yeah, not just the concept of role models, which is important, but I think when you add in the concept of role models within the sports arena, it becomes yes. even more yes. important. Yes, yes. So uh, over the past couple of years at Boston Spirit Magazine, we've done a couple of interviews, a couple of articles with people in the sports world. So I had the chance to interview Sean Thornton, who played for the Bruins a number of years ago. He was the fighter, the tough guy. And we thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting if the toughest guy in Boston came out and said, I wouldn't care if I had a gay teammate, which he did. No one would care in the locker room. We interviewed Doc Rivers, who had the chance to coach both Jason Collins and, and John Amici. Again, same thing very open-minded, it wouldn't be a problem for anybody, so forth and so on. That said, there aren't any professional out currently playing uh, Mm -hmm. athletes in football, baseball, basketball, so forth. So so for kids to have a role model within the community is fantastic. For them to have somebody in the sports community is even better. With regard to the visiting the White House, one thing we have to keep in mind is, is a number of years ago when the Bruins won the Stanley Cup, Tim Thomas, goalie on the team, did not go to the White House to visit with President Obama. He got beat up pretty good in the media uh, here in town for having that view. And now we've got many athletes who are saying we're not going to the White House because we don't align with President Trump. I think the one thing that we have to be a little bit cognizant of is that there will be views on both sides of the aisle. 
and you can't beat up one person for having a view of not wanting to go visit President Obama and laud somebody else for not wanting to go visit President Trump. If they decide they don't want to go to the White House, regardless of who's occupying the, you know, the Oval Office, you either have to be accepting of both or that everybody should go. So, David, while you're talking, let's dive into an article in your magazine, Boston Spirit, about making LGBT events more inclusive to reflect and connect, as you say in the headline, and celebrate our entire community. Now, I think a lot of people will hear that and go, huh? Uh, What are you talking about? Yeah, well, I can tell you what we're talking about. Uh, If you have been to one of the the quote-unquote major LGBT events in the city of Boston throughout the year, and those are uh, Fenway Health has a men's event and a women's dinner. Boston Spirit has an executive networking night. GLAAD has a Spirit of Justice dinner. The Human Rights Campaign has their gala. So there are a number of these large-scale, 1,000-people-plus events that take part in the city. And if you go to them, you will notice, or you should notice, that they are predominantly white, overwhelmingly white. And I include Boston Spirits event in there as well. Uh, We are not immune to it. And we started talking recently to try to figure out why. Why is it? And we did an article about it. A couple things came out. The one thing that I thought was, was really, really interesting was from Gary Daffin, African-American gay man uh, in the city and, and runs some of the organizations. Who, uh, yeah. I'm losing the in organization. Boca, yeah. Yeah. Multicultural right, Aids Coalition. Right, yeah. Multicultural Aids Coalition. And one of the things he said that, uh, that, that struck me is that as a person of color who is gay, there are times where you are rejected by your family and then you are rejected by your friends. And to then risk being rejected by your community is a lot to take on. I can't speak to that, but the sentiment struck me, that fear is there. So that struck me, and then they talked about economic, geographic, so forth and so on, but that one part about uh, that that triple rejection uh, and the fear of that triple rejection is something that really stuck out to me and and something that uh, needs to be addressed. Well, Dwayne, you can speak to it. You can (laughs) speak to it as an African-American man, so speak to it. I can. I think there's several different things happening here. I do agree you know, what Gary said in the article, there's kind of these extra layers of oppression that can take place. And when you think about kind of just communities in general, the, you know, the LGBT community, people assume it's more progressive than most communities. Exactly. But, but racism yeah. exists in the LGBT community just like any other community. And so I think because of, you know, what's happening with Black Lives Matter in the world right now, we're kind of having a more nuanced conversation about institutional oppression, which is great. But that still exists in our community. And it's, I mean, I think... Also, when you look at the kind of events that have were discussed earlier, these mostly, like was kind of said in the article, these are all events for donors. And when you look at employment discrimination, when you look at poverty statistics within communities of color, that also plays out in these same environments. And, you know, I just think it's really about, you know, these agencies really doing more outreach to LGBTQ communities of color creating spaces that are more inclusive to LGBTQ communities of color, but being extremely intentional about it and creative about trying to make sure that the barriers are being kind of pulled down when it comes to folks interacting with these events. What's the danger of the continuation of, of events that aren't reflective of the inclusivity? Well, it's, it's, it's the danger that faces all of us for not being inclusive and bringing diversity and its death. <laughs> You know, I mean, these organizations and the events will eventually run out of donors and run out of money, and I don't imagine that's really going to happen, but that's what the challenge is. The thing I think that has to happen, and it's not just the LGBTQ community, but you have to give up your power. You know, you've got all of these organizations, all of these events 
are tremendously successful, and they have been built by oppressed people, by the LGBTQ people, to build these places. But a lot of them don't work anymore, the spaces itself. And, you know, to make it a welcoming and safe space for minority members of the community, however you define that, to come in, it's almost like you have to blow up the whole idea. Mm-hmm. You know, until we can say, well, great, the board, whatever board, is all African-American, and that's fine, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're going to make the event the way they want to make it and work towards replacing the people on the board who have done a great job and are, again, all boards, uh, kudos to them. We just need to re- rethink the entire institutions and how we do them because it's, you know, I've been a token. You know, I, mm. back in the uh, in the early uh, 90s, I was the lesbian mm. who was on the board or the lesbian who uh, went to the meetings. Gary Daffin used to be the black guy that was <clears throat> there, and he would be at every single event because he, you was know, it. he was it. And yeah. he would just mm-hmm. default to Gary or default <laughs> to Sue because we'd say yes. And I just think we just need to be more vigorous about how we're going to change the institutional nature of how we do things for all of us, everybody. Mm. Mm. Dwayne, this may be a little bit in your backyard, but it's in all of ours, I, I suppose, because it's all part of this Me Too conversation. It's in your publication, however, Sue, about mm-hmm. the Fenway Health needing new leadership. And that's because at Harvey Macadon mm-hmm. was released after years of bullying and sexually harassing staff. So why are, haven't they replaced? I mean, what's 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 the problem? Well, uh, my my take on it is it's less about Harvey, Dr. Macadon, and more about Steve Boswell, who was the director, the big boss over at Fenway, who ignored recommendations to get rid of Harvey Macadon, and also Steve Boswell's contract was renewed. Uh, he's no longer there. They've moved forward with a new acting executive director, who I understand is great and doing a great job. But this is a cautionary tale, I think, to every person who has ever been invited to be on a board, Mm. right? If you are on a board of a nonprofit and tough decisions need to be made, you need to make them. And much of the board that's in existence at the Fenway now allowed what happened to happen, allowed Steve Boswell to re-sign a contract and basically look the other way while this happened. And I've talked to hundreds of Fenway staff members who were just astonished that this happened at the Fenway Health Center. So my call is that just like if you're on USA Gymnastics or Mm -hmm. at a college or on a board where something bad has happened on your watch, either because you ignored it or you thought, oh, we like this guy, we're going to keep him anyway, I think you have to resign. I just want to underscore that they renewed his contract for four years more. Right, right, four so, years more. So and how understand. many millions of dollars was mm-hmm. that, you know, in pay that the Fenway is asking folks to donate to, mm-hmm. you know? So I just think that if you agree to be on a board, tough things have to happen sometimes. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Sue O'Connell. You just heard her of NECN and Bay Windows, Dwayne Stewart of the Fenway Institute, and David Zimmerman of Boston Spirit Magazine. We're talking about the stories you may have missed affecting the Massachusetts LGBTQ communities and queer people nationwide. David, Mm -hmm. Dwayne, how do you all want to respond to Sue's comment? Well, you know, one thing I think that comes into play here that is not specific to Fenway, but applied to Fenway in this instance, is that across the board with many of these nonprofits and organizations that have boards of directors, these boards of directors are nothing more than really rubber stamp Mm -hmm. for what senior management at the organization wants to do. It's a ceremonial role 
for lack of a better term, in that the CEO, the CFO come in, tell you what's going on, tell you what you want to do, and the board says, sounds good to me. So I think that's part of it. And over time, if you're on a board for a number of years, chances are very good that you're going to become friendly with the senior executives at these organizations. That comes into play. Fenway has also gotten to the point now where it's gotten so big that it's not quite as, as nimble you know, with some of these other organizations. You know, the old saying, it's a lot easier to, to turn around a speedboat than it is a mm-hmm. Navy carrier, mm-hmm. right? So I think they were absolutely dropped the ball on this one. I think they were utilizing some means and methods that are very outdated for handling these things. Times have changed. And, and in this instance, this particular instance, times didn't change at Fenway. It was very much a, a seemingly a 70s mentality of, oh, Harvey being Harvey. You know, when somebody mm-hmm. go up and tell Harvey to knock it off. Okay, that's not the way we're going to do things anymore. And it didn't go further than that. And now it does need to go further than that. So I understand what Sue is saying about the board, and they did not handle this correctly. But I think that had more to do with just the traditional makeup and the traditional role and responsibility of the boards in these organizations. That needs to be redefined. And I think this instance will play a major part in redefining what the role of the board at Fenway and what the role of all these organizations will be moving forward. Yeah, so I, you know, I obviously want to comment. I, I work at Fenway Health. Yeah. <laughs> I have been for the past three years. I definitely think that what David and Stuart are saying is definitely representative of what the community is feeling right now when it comes to Fenway Health. But I will say that it is definitely agreed, even within Fenway, that Steve Boswell uh, made some mistakes and he, there was some neglect that took place. And that is why several members, including Steve Boswell and, you know, the head of the board at the time, they were released from their roles. And I think Fenway right now is in a major place of transition, and we're taking advantage of this moment. There's been a lot of things that are happening internally. We hired a new interim CEO, Darlene Stromstead, who is doing a lot of great work. And I'm actually excited right now for this moment in Fenway Health, because I think that some of those things that were mentioned, the kind of old ways of doing things, are really starting to finally be addressed and are finally going away. And um, there's been trainings. I'm actually leading a racial justice and equity initiative that's happening within Fenway to shift things, not only when it comes to gender inequality, but racial inequality. And so I think we're heading in a good direction. Well, I appreciate you shedding some light on that subject and the others that we talked about today. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Sue O'Connell is the host of NECN's The Take with Sue O'Connell and the co-publisher of Bay Windows. Dwayne Stewart is the Director of Community Affairs for the Fenway Institute. And David Zimmerman is the publisher of Boston Spirit Magazine. Coming up, why don't you just eat? It's a question often posed to people living with eating disorders. But these deadly mental illnesses are not just about food. We explore the nature and the danger of eating disorders with two local experts. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Intellectually, you know your worth isn't dependent on your appearance. I wanted, at the time, to be a supermodel. In short, it was because I wasn't truly pleased with what I saw, but that was based on what I wanted to be and what is accepted in the industry in which I found myself. I felt like I had no control over myself or my surroundings. So I turned to my body as a thing that I could control in order to give me a sense of stability. 
When many of us hear the words eating disorder, we think of an emaciated young woman struggling to feed herself. In reality, eating disorders aren't just about restricting food intake. These dangerous mental illnesses can include overeating, overexercising, even a fear of certain foods. An estimated 20 million American women and 10 million American men will have an eating disorder at some point in their lives. And as Eating Disorder Awareness Week begins tomorrow, eating disorders are on the rise. Here to tell us more, Beth Mayer, licensed independent clinical social worker and executive director of the Multi-Service Eating Disorder Association in Newton. Welcome, Beth. Hi there. And also with me, Dr. Jennifer Thomas, associate professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School and co-director of Massachusetts General Hospital's Eating Disorders Clinical and Research Program. Hello, Jennifer. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for covering this important topic. Well, I have to say, I am delighted to do so on, you know, it's a very sad topic, but I realized in doing the research, I thought I knew something about eating disorders. I'm sure this is the conversation you have to have with everybody. But I actually really did think I knew something. And I am surprised and shocked by my lack of knowledge. So I really want to make sure that we, you know, dive right in. So here's the first thing that I thought wrong, that it's all about people who just don't eat. So it's a world of people who have anorexia, or maybe on the other end, I knew a little about bulimia who are throwing up. But that was it. I didn't have a sense of the spectrum. So I'm going to ask each of you to really describe what eating disorders are all about. I'll start with you, Jennifer. Sure. Um, I think a lot of people have the same experience you're describing that, you know, when you think of eating disorders, you think of anorexia nervosa. But anorexia is really just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to eating disorders. And it's actually one of the least common presentations that we see. In addition to what you described around restricting food intake and rigid dieting, we also see folks who are trying to compensate for calories calories by vomiting, exercise, laxatives, people who eat large amounts of food and feel like they can't stop, they're out of control, they're binge eating. And then recently you started seeing folks who have a new disorder called avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, which is folks who only eat a very limited range of foods because either they're afraid that they'll have bad consequences from eating like vomiting or choking or that the foods will taste really gross and they feel too nervous about trying new things. So there's quite a lot of diversity in eating and eating disorders. Beth, you want to add to that? Yeah, I think that people see anorexia and they see what somebody's body looks like, but most eating disorders are very hidden, and it's a disorder where people feel very shamed for their behavior. And so when we're looking at people that struggle with eating disorder, we're also looking at the psychological issues that come with it, the shame, the hiding. And many people, binge eating disorder is the most common eating disorder, and most people, you would never know somebody's struggling with it. Let's pause and talk about binge eating disorder because, frankly, never heard of that. And I think I see people talking about something like binge-like eating in a very casual way, and it would never occur to me that's a disorder. So, Beth, start off and talk about what's that about? Well, I think it's the newest diagnosis Mm -hmm. in the DSM-5. It's the diagnostic manual (laughs) (laughs) um, that people use to assess whether somebody has an eating disorder. Kind of like the Bible of psychiatry. Okay, very good. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. And um, BED is more common than breast cancer. HIV and schizophrenia. It, wow. it, that is crazy. And most people, particularly in multiple ethnicities, do not know that they're struggling with binge eating disorder. They may come home from work and binge all night, feel guilty, feel horrible, barely be able to get up in the morning, but they don't know that this is an actual disorder. 
So what does it look like? Beth gave us a little bit of an indication of coming home and, you know, sort of eating this. But I'm thinking some of this I may have heard I would think would be situational. I just lost my boyfriend. I'm going to go to the refrigerator and eat five pints of Haagen-Dazs. Well, how's that a disorder? Isn't that just a normal reaction to you lost your boyfriend? I think if you only did it the, the night that you lost your boyfriend, we can all relate to sometimes eating more than a pint of ice cream. But at the same time, for it to qualify as a disorder, it has to be a persistent behavior. So the example Beth gave of, you know, kind of going home and, and eating a lot after work or, Kelly, what you said about the five pints of ice cream, it would need to be happening um, at least once a week for at least three months at a time. And it has to be associated with certain other features. So things like eating a very large amount of foods, so not just a little bit extra, but a very large amount feeling like you just can't stop eating even if you want to. Gosh, just feeling disgusted about how much you've eaten, feeling very guilty about that amount, and really just feeling like you you can't stop eating. So I've been looking at a lot of YouTube videos of people who are suffering from eating disorders along the spectrum. And one that struck me about the binge eating was a, a man who was filmed inside his house and he talked about getting a call that he'd been suffering from it anyway, but he caught getting a call that his brother had died. And then he described in great detail what he ate. It took me probably well over two hours to get here, but not before I stopped at the fast food restaurant. So I looked at the receipt, I didn't even know what I had. Three Big Macs, two large fries, a couple cheeseburgers. I think I had a 20 piece nugget. And that was less than a mile from here, and I ate it before I got here. Beth, does that ring true? This is a scenario of binge eating that you've seen before? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that there is a big difference between, again, a one-time response to a trauma or something that feels horrible and you just want to numb yourself or needing to numb yourself on a daily basis. What we say about eating disorders, they have a little bit of an addiction quality to them. It's a self-soothing, that it feels good for a few moments and then it feels bad. It's numbing. It is numbing. Mm -hmm. To restrict, to binge, to purge can feel very numbing for that individual. And so it can happen on a very, very regular basis. And again, it can affect our work life, our home life, our personal life, all of that. And it's very, very hard to stop because many people that have these behaviors, they get in patterns where either they may restrict all day with the idea in their head, oh, when I get home, I'll be able to do this behavior. And actually, it calms them to think about, you know, I always give the example with my families of people who on a Friday afternoon think about, well, I'm can't wait to have a glass of wine on a Friday night, and mm. it kind of gets you through that Friday. Mm. With somebody with an eating disorder, it's like a hundred times worse. <laughs> you know, you're mm. thinking and your mind gets very distorted in terms of thinking about that behavior and how it will calm you. That's my guest, Beth Mayer. She's a licensed independent clinical social worker and executive director of the Multi-Service Eating Disorder Association in Newton. Now, over to you, Dr. Jennifer Thomas. That video that, that we're talking about, the guy is filmed in his house in the dark. Mm. I was struck by how much of this behavior is in secret, that a part of it is secretive. Can you speak to that? 
Absolutely. You know, I think it's a lot like what Beth said, that a lot of these behaviors um, feel very shameful. And in fact, eating alone because you're embarrassed by how much you're eating is another piece of the diagnostic criteria for binge eating disorder. It's not a requirement, but something that we certainly see all the time. And even when we're asking patients um, to complete questionnaires to kind of get a sense of the severity of the disorder, those are the types of questions that we ask. You know, do you eat alone, eat in secret because you're worried what other people will think? And that's my guest, Dr. Jennifer Thomas. She's associate professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School and co-director of Massachusetts General Hospital's Eating Disorders Clinical and Research Program. So here's something that I know a lot of people are thinking as we were listening to the gentleman talking about men. Eating disorders, I have to say, I think I thought that only women or mostly women. I figured there must be a couple of men, but it's significant. Doctor, can you speak to that? Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you're bringing this up because, you know, again, when we think of eating disorders, I think a lot of people think of anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa because they were the first ones to be discovered or described. And certainly it's true that the majority of individuals with those disorders are women, but certainly we see men who have those disorders as well. And oftentimes what I see clinically, and I'd be curious, Beth, your experience that sometimes by the time that men come to our clinic in order to seek treatment, their disorders are quite severe, um, that they've kind of been overlooked um, by other doctors who might think, gosh, well, you're a guy. Like, do you really have an eating disorder or is this just a diet? Is this something else? And then the other thing that we've been noticing um, is that with the advent of new diagnoses like binge eating disorder and avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, those actually have a different epidemiology where we even see more men who have the disorder in general. With avoidant restrictive, it's actually the majority are males. So that's been very interesting for our practice just to have so many more boys and men come in for treatment. Now, why do you, why do you think that the avoidance restrictive is that more men are seeming to have that. Such a good question. Um, you know, we don't really know scientifically. We're actually doing research about this right now. But one of our theories is that because there's so much pressure in society on women to look a certain way and to have this perfect body, that if they develop an eating disorder, they might be more likely to have a disorder that involves body image disturbance and worrying about their appearance. And because avoidant restrictive food intake disorder is one where there's no body image disturbance, it's all really about fear of the aversive consequences of eating in terms of vomiting or choking or about not feeling hungry or about feeling like foods will be disgusting, that, you know, maybe men who would have otherwise had a genetic predisposition for disordered eating are more developing that type of eating disorder because there's not quite as much cultural pressure. I'm not saying none. There mm. certainly is on men and to be muscular and so on, but not quite as much in terms of appearance. So, Beth, did you want to respond to whether you, the men that you see, are they they're much sicker by the time they get to you? Yes, I mm. agree. If we had more resources mm. and it was talked about more, which I'm so glad we're talking mm -hmm. about it, that I think more men would come out and get services. 40% of men have been eating disorder. Think oh, do you mean that 40% of individuals with eating disorder are have, men? Yeah, mm -hmm. have men. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Thomas. So I think the more we talk about it, the more men will come out and feel less shame, but they feel like it's a woman's disorder. Yeah. So I think talking about it and being very public about it will help. And I also think there are, are less treatment programs for men. Mm -hmm. uh, not every treatment program accepts men. Mm -hmm. So that's another issue. Why is that? I think, again, our society has not let men talk about this and feel like they can have a voice in what's happening with their eating disorder. I think it can be more shaming for men to come out and talk about it. So there are some treatment programs. There's a treatment program in the Midwest that just specializes in men's issues. And there are some treatment programs in the Boston community that accept men. But when you're in a treatment program, you're the one male out mm -hmm. of 10 female. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And that can be very, very hard for you. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Beth Mayer. You just heard her of the Multi-Service Eating Disorders Association and Dr. Jennifer Thomas of Mass General's Eating Disorders Clinical and Research Program. We're discussing lesser-known eating disorders and myths about eating disorders as we approach Eating Disorder Awareness Week, which kicks off tomorrow. So let's tackle some of these myths. First, the one that I think is standard, I guess, it's seen as a choice. If you just ate more or stopped eating, in this case of binge eating, just get it in your mind that you could do that. Why can't you do that? So can you speak to that, uh, Dr. Thomas, about how many people feel like these people have a choice? Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I think the idea of eating disorders as a choice is certainly something that contributes to the stigma of the disorder. You know, if someone in the family has cancer, people will bring over casseroles and ask what they can do to help. And if somebody has a mental illness like anorexia or bulimia, that's not always the case in terms of the level of support. Our group really thinks that eating disorders are biologically based mental illnesses. And that's partly why we do research looking at neuroimaging and neuroendocrine hormones that might be either causal or at least maintain the disorder once it's in place. I certainly think that it can be a choice to try to determine whether you'd like to pursue recovery and seek treatment, but I don't think that anyone decides that they want to have a devastating mental illness like an eating disorder. So just to underscore what you just said, if it's biological, then it's already inside you. Is it possible for you to have gone, I don't know, let's say 10, 15 years, nothing, and then get triggered, and then it's no turning back. Definitely. And, you know, one, one of our colleagues in the field, Cindy Bulick, who does genetics research, likes to say that genes load the gun and environment pulls the trigger. Mm-hmm. So if you have, you know, a young person, you know, say, who has a genetic predisposition to have high levels of negative affect and perfectionism, and then that person is put in an environment like ballet or, you know, figure skating or gymnastics, then that person might be more likely than to develop the disorder versus someone who didn't have the genetic predisposition position or wasn't put in that sort of environment. That's my guest, Dr. Jennifer Thomas of Mass General Hospital. Beth, one of the things I have to say is media has had quite an impact on shaping our ideas, mine certainly, and I think some of maybe even making the setting for the triggering that Dr. Thomas talked about, the environment that she talked about rather, meaning, now I'm talking about men again, there's a lot of emphasis if you just watch a casual shows about building muscle, going to the gym, sculpting, abs, whatever. And that requires, as a part of it, some kind of food adjustment. And so if guys are in secret doing this at the gym, there's way more than even doctors have calculated or out there than perhaps struggling with this. Absolutely. Mm. And I think that when we start what I call fiddling with our food Mm. Mm. and eating less than our body needs, that can actually be a trigger to overeating and can be one of the triggers to an eating disorder. So a lot of people, you know, 95% of diets, 90 to 95% of diets actually fail and people gain the weight back. So what I say is we're living in a very disturbed society around food and body, Mm. and we're putting billions and billions of dollars into something that doesn't work. I think what Dr. Thomas and I would agree is that as we work with people towards a full recovery, and we do believe that people can fully recover, they need to eat mindfully and listen to their body, just like little children do at the beginning. 
But all of these media influences on how you should be, how your body should look, how you should be eating, has created a lot of chaos in our society, which is not stopping, and it's very frightening. That's my guest, Beth Mayer, Executive Director of the Multi-Service Eating Disorder Association in Newton. Are there some specific media images, impacts that you all would point to that have particularly created an environment for both men and women to end up stimulating what began as biological? Well, I think our dieting culture is toxic. (laughs) And one thing I've noticed just being in the field for more than a decade now is that the types of symptoms that our patients have seem to reflect the types of diets that are out there in the world. Give me an example. Well, for example, patients who are older and had their eating disorder for a longer period of time might come in on kind of a low-fat diet. So Mm -hmm. they're following the trends that were in place when they developed their eating disorder 20 or 30 years ago, whereas a lot of the newer folks who come in, the younger patients are going more low-carb or paleo kind of reflecting the type of dining environment that they grew up in. How can you recognize what may be a situational response? I'm going on a diet and I'm like 15 other people that go on a diet and then I get off and then I go back to someone who really then has a basis in biology and the environment created for them by going on and off that diet is really now dangerous. What are the symptoms, the signs early on? Well, I think you could ask yourself a few questions. You know, do you feel like food rules your life? Are you able to recover from something if you, you know, screw up on your diet? Does that ruin your entire day or make you feel horrible about yourself as a person? Are you just maybe overeating a little bit sometimes because you've had a breakup or is it more a persistent pattern of behavior where you feel like you can't stop eating large amounts of food? Has your weight fluctuated by a great deal? Have you lost 10 or 20 pounds and then gained it back in very quick succession? I think those would be some things. Maybe one more would be, are you cutting out entire classes of food? So not just trying to say, I'm going to eat more healthy or I'm going to eat fewer sweets, but I can't have any carbs. I can't have any sweets whatsoever, ever. The more black and white the thinking is, I think the more likely it is to either be or lead to an eating disorder. Yes, Beth. And one of the things I ask all my patients when I'm doing their assessment is how many hours a day do you spend thinking about your body and food? And many of them laugh and they say, I think about it all the time. I don't really care in my assessment whether they have a clinical diagnosis for an eating disorder or whether they have disordered eating. Mm. If it is something they think about all the time, we have to go back to what people's values are. You know, I always say when you're 60 or 70 years old, do you want to look back in your life and say, I would have had a happy life if I had just lost those five pounds? That's not what we want in our world. And I think that that's a lot when people look at the way they relate to food in their bodies. And again, whether they have an eating disorder or whether they've had disordered eating, that's not what we want in our culture. So one of the uh, YouTube videos, again, that I saw, the victim described having a roommate in his head. There was Mm -hmm. all these thoughts, thoughts, thoughts in the head the whole time, like somebody was living with him. Yeah. I mean, eating disorders can lead to a cascade of really predictable types of thoughts and feelings around you're not good enough. You shouldn't have eaten that. You're too fat. And some of our patients actually like to sort of personify the illness. Um, Some people call it ED or ED for eating disorder. Mm. Um, So that's certainly out there. Have you seen that as well, Beth? Yes. I think um, it's almost like there's another person on your shoulder going, are you going to eat that? You're going to regret that. You know, and so I think people talk about the other part of them, the eating disorder part 
And what I do, and I'm sure what Dr. Thomas does, is we try to help blend those parts, the healthy part of them, the part of them that wants to recover, and that other part, and really question, why is that aspect, why is that so strong? And usually it's because it wants to gain some control over something, right? A lot of times eating disorders come into our life, not just with genetics, but because things feel out of control in our life. And it is the one thing we believe, although not it's not true, that we can control. So just to be clear, eating disorders are mental illness. And I think that in and of itself, coupled with the behavior which looks controllable from the outside, from everybody else, is a hard turn for some to make and maybe to have respect for the impact that this is having and does have on many people. Would you agree with that, Dr. Thomas, that it feels like it's something you can overcome so it can't really be a mental illness as we think about mental illness? Yeah, and I think that that's a typical thing that our patients think as well, that they think, well, I'm just going to diet until I get to a certain weight and then everything will be fine and I won't need the eating disorder anymore. But often people find that the eating disorder ends up controlling them. And we certainly see that in the biological research that we do, that there are actually different patterns in the brain when individuals who are restricting their intake look at um, images of tasty foods, for example. So those with a fo- avoidant restrictive food intake disorder um, don't have as high of reward activation or of, as high of appetite regulating circuitry in their brain when they're looking at images of tasty foods. And they don't have as high levels of hunger hormones when they're actually coming to the table to eat a test meal, even in the laboratory. So they're actually biological threads that keep these disorders in place and keep it difficult for people to recover unless they really make an effort or their families are able to help them. Now, the reason I raise this and want to characterize it as it is, as a mental illness, Beth, is because I think unless people understand that it's not some everyday function that I do have control over, that it really is an illness that needs to be treated in the same way one would treat diabetes, I'm putting that out there. Maybe that's one of the reasons why it's so misunderstood and not given the respect that it has. And before you answer, I just want to put this statistic out that it is suicide rate is the highest in all mental illnesses from eating disorders. I was shocked by that. It is a horrible illness, and many people do not believe they can recover, and the process of recovery is very, very hard. And so I think that the suicide rates have gone up and up all of us have dealt with a number of suicides in the field of eating disorders. So I think it's very important for people to know that and also to know that once somebody is recovered, they still need help because usually they're dealing with things that they were kind of pushing down or managing with the eating disorder. So people need treatment continually after they recover. Not everybody but many people do. The other thing I'd add about the suicide is that eating disorders are very painful illnesses. So people are sort of practicing every day, starving themselves, exercising, binging past the point of fullness. And so there are some theories that the link with suicide also has something to do with the idea that if things are very painful, you're practicing harming yourself every day and you're bringing mm. yourself that much closer to it being okay. You know, what's the big deal then to move on to killing yourself? Mm-hmm. So there's two other facts that I learned from this that I both thought were shocking. Younger people seem to be getting this. And worldwide, it's on the rise. Because earlier, both of you talked about our culture and our particular sort of crazy diet, you know, media-focused body image thing. But worldwide, what does that mean if the disease is on the rise worldwide and younger kids are getting it? Beth, I'll, I'll start with you. 
I think that what we're finding as media comes into other cultures and other communities that people kind of crave having certain bodies with the media. So again, there's a genetic component, but it's also as the world gets more disordered around food and body, people are going to have those disorders. There was a study when Ann Becker did years and years ago before media had gone into Fiji. And then she did a study following it. And the Fiji study showed that adolescent girls were more inclined to eating disorders or disordered eating after the media came in. So, yeah, prior to that, 0% of the girls were vomiting. And then after they started watching TV shows like 90210 and Xena Warrior Princess, then 11% of them were vomiting. So you can see the toxic influence of the media being imported to other cultures. So as we've said, Eating Disorder Awareness Week starts tomorrow. What one thing would you want people listening, either people who have no connection with it or other folks who are struggling who might be hearing this, Is there the one thing that you want everybody to take away from this conversation? I'll start with you, doctor. Sure. We have a longitudinal study of following um, women. We could would be great to include men, but in general, we, we have women in this study um, for 20 years. And we've actually found that the vast majority of them did go on to recover in the end. So I would want anyone listening to know that if you have an eating disorder or you have a loved one that has an eating disorder, there is hope. There's recovery. We have treatments that are evidence-based and highly effective. And please get help. And is that recovery lifelong, sort of like a recovering alcoholic, or is it finite? I think that it's finite, although someone might have to look out for, you know, the next time you break up with a boyfriend or have a transition, there could be a risk for a relapse. But yes, people can go on to live full lives eating disorder free. So please get help. Okay. Beth, what would you say? I totally agree with Dr. Thomas, and that is the message I would give. And in addition to that, I believe that everyone has to, around that person who's struggling, has to believe in their recovery. Mm -hmm. I find that a lot of people say, well, we've been at this for three years and you're not recovered. You know, I don't know when you're going to recover. And I think that if people are wondering about recovery, they should get help themselves. And the belief in recovery will help the people who are struggling move towards it. Thank you both for really eye-opening discussion about something I think too many of us think we know already. So I thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks, Kelly. Beth Mayer is a licensed independent clinical social worker and executive director of the Multi-Service Eating Disorder Association in Newton. And Dr. Jennifer Thomas is an associate professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School and co-director of Massachusetts General Hospital's Eating Disorders Clinical and Research Program. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineers are Doug Sugarts, John Parker, and Karen Marshall. Andrea Aswahi is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. Mm-hmm.